Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Welcome to Jazz Shapers, where the shapers of business join the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. My guest today is serial entrepreneur Sir Keith Mills founder of the Air Miles and Nectar Customer Loyalty Programmes and international president and CEO of London 2012, the company that successfully won the bid for the 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games. After a teacher told him his career options were sweeping Dagenham Ford factory floor or making coffee and running messages in London, Sir Keith chose the latter and left school aged 15 with only a swimming certificate. Working his way up through the advertising industry to launch his own agency in his early 20s, he went on to found and hold leadership roles at multiple businesses and charities, launching the Air Miles International Group in 1988 and developing both Air Miles, the incentive scheme for spare airplane seats, and Nectar, the supermarket loyalty card that reached 21 million households. After his company, London 2012, won the bid to host the Olympic Games, Sir Keith established the London Organising Committee of the Olympic and Paralympic Games, where he was deputy chairman alongside Lord Sebastian Coe. He's the founder of two sport development charities, International Inspiration and the UK Focus Sported, and in 2014 he founded and was chairman of the Invictus Games, working with Prince Harry to deliver a new major international sport event for wounded servicemen and women. As he says, I am driven by organisations that make a real contribution to society. It's lovely to have you on the programme. I've wanted to have you on it for quite a while and here you are. Thank you so much for joining today. That's great to be here. Sir Keith, your background is where I want to start just briefly. I'm not going to do a chronology, so don't worry. Started life in a council house, left school at 15. Could you in your wildest dreams have imagined that your life would have panned out like this? No, not really. I mean, I had no idea. And I don't think many 15-year-olds have any idea of how their life is going to pan out. Actually, whilst our family didn't have any money, I had a great family, a great uh, mum and dad and and brother and sister. And although we lived in a council house in in Essex, uh, we had a fun early few years of life, but no idea of where it was going. And uh, all I did know was that I really didn't want to go and work at uh, Ford Motor Company in Dagenham. And in terms of the advertising thing and how it happened, there are many self-made people in the advertising world, actually, or at least there were a little earlier. Now it's, it's much harder and there are the more usual trail of university graduate and so on and so forth. But plenty of entrepreneurial people have started in the postroom or the equivalent. What was it like when you did start and how quickly did you feel like you ought to be or you would want to run your own show? Well, I, I started uh, actually in Fleet Street, and yeah, I was the office boy running errands and that sort of thing. And it was pretty clear in the first couple of jobs that I had, which were mostly around the media, that somebody with no qualifications, and in those days, no connections, you know, I was a council house kid from Essex, without the connections and without the qualifications, I simply wasn't going to get an interesting job. And so it became pretty evident pretty quickly that if I was going to do things that were interesting, I'm probably going to have to do them myself. So it was it was really, it was my only option to do interesting things, I guess. And were there people in those early days that said, this this boy's got something? Did you recall people saying, do you know what, Keith, go for it? Was it were they encouraging or, or was it more like, oh, who's this fellow, as you said, with no contacts, thinks he's above his station, wants to go and you know change the world? What was it? Because I, I, I think, you know, you read about people, I've read a lot about you, and I haven't heard there were well, yesterday there was this mentor and so on and so forth but I wonder if there were people that nudged you at the time 
Yeah, I mean, I think I joined The Economist uh, newspaper when I was around 19, I guess. It was my second or third job. And that opened my eyes to a completely different world because pretty much everyone at The Economist went to Oxford or Cambridge and most of them were educated at Harrow or Eton. And I saw a very different way of life. And, and I have to say, some of the people there gave me a huge encouragement that just because I didn't go to a smart school or university, it really didn't, you know, the editor then was a guy called Alistair Burnett. And, you know, sitting with him on a Wednesday evening, figuring out how to put The Economist to bed, gave me a, a sense of what was possible. And I think if there was any company or group of individuals that gave me a break, it was The Economist. In the economist world and in the advertising world, you're essentially earning, well, when you move from the economist into advertising, you're earning fees, and that's all very nice. I recall many, many years ago that you sort of said, I think I had an epiphany, Elliot. I realized I wanted to find a business where I could be making money while I was asleep. And there was a client that you had, I think it was Caledonian at the time, if I recall, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, just remember this story suddenly. And you said, actually, I figured out that if I created this this Air Miles program, this was a different business model, and it wouldn't mean I was at my desk for 15 hours a day. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's so broadly right. Um, uh, I had um, started, bought, sold some advertising agencies um, in, the, in the 1980s, and it was really hard work, frankly. Um, clients were very fickle, and it was a tough way to earn a living. And I certainly had some thoughts about there must be an easier way of running a business and earning money. And I was on a train journey, actually, from Liverpool on a Friday evening back to London. I was up there seeing Royal Insurance, one of my advertising clients. And I had a brief from British Caledonian, the airline, and from Shell, and quite separate briefs. This is way before Ryanair and EasyJet and the low-cost carriers. And British Caledonian, like most airlines, was running at around 70% load factor, i.e., 70% of the seats were sold. And their brief to me was, we've tried lots of things to fill our unsold seats because you know, generating extra revenue for an unsold seat goes straight to the bottom line. So any ideas you might have, filling those unsold seats would be really worth listening to. And at the same time, I had a brief from Shell, who run probably the most commoditized business you can imagine, selling petrol. How do we differentiate Shell from BP, from all the other petrol retailers. And, and I came up on this plane with this concept called air miles, a currency that if Shell gave all their drivers air miles when they filled up with petrol and they saved them up, then they could redeem them for flights on British Caledonian. I mean, that was the, didn't work out that way incidentally, but that was the, that was the core of the idea. And then the leap from actually realizing or having that thought and then realizing the ambition, again, would have taken some guts because then you essentially say, well, I've got a new business idea here. And then you had to get people to buy into it. And in that process, was there any doubt? Because again, you look back at one looks at your life from outside of you and only you know what it feels like, truthfully. And they say, wow, that's the fellow that created that. I mean, at the time, you probably thought you were going to lose everything, I imagine. Or were there moments of that? Yeah, I mean, I think in all businesses in the early stages, there are lots of moments of doubt. I think, though, and, and actually, subsequently, I mean, I see lots and lots and lots of business plans, and I invest in, in, in businesses. The most difficult thing is not the idea, actually. The most difficult thing is the execution, turning that idea into a viable long-term business. So the, the idea on the train coming back from Liverpool was the easy bit. When I got back to my agency on Monday morning, I gave the idea to my finance director and said, 
this is a brilliant idea. We're going to make a fortune. And he got his calculator out and worked out that you'd have to spend £65,000 on petrol to get a free airline ticket. And that really wasn't viable. So uh, with all of the businesses that I've been involved in, turning a good idea into a great business is really challenging. And it was very challenging getting air miles off the ground and getting British Airways to buy into it. And frankly, had it not worked, I would have been bankrupt and been wiped out. As with many entrepreneurs, they put everything on the line and I put everything on the line and, and thankfully it eventually came good. And the DNA, just briefly, that, that's in Keith Mills that says, I put everything on the line, but essentially what the next sentence is, and that means I'm prepared to lose it. Where does that and I'm prepared to back myself belief come from? Uh, do you know, I, I really don't know. The one, the one advantage of having nothing, which is really where I started at 15 in a council house, is that you can't go much further back from that, really. So I can imagine somebody that perhaps has had a great education and a great university and perhaps had parents with money being worried that if they do something stupid, they're going to lose a lot. But what if, you know, if you start with not a lot, then there's not a lot to lose. But numerous times through my career, not just with Air Miles, but with pretty much every other major move, I've taken significant risks. And, and to be honest, I think in my DNA, I thrive on... Uh, challenges and thrive on taking risks. And if I'm not taking a risk, frankly, I don't feel like I'm trying hard enough. Stay with me for my business shaper, Sir Keith Mills, who hopefully won't feel he's not trying hard enough here for at least for the next half an hour or so. He'll be back with me in a couple of minutes. Right now that we're going to hear a taster from the Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions, they can be found on all the major podcast platforms. Mishcon Alexander Rhodes explores how businesses are responding to COVID-19 and the importance that social value will play in success in the post-crisis world. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. The frameworks around environmental governance and the frameworks around social governance are developing. In the most fundamental way, having a, a business that doesn't pollute, having a, a business that doesn't abuse, and, and having a business that isn't exploitative have been around forever. But taken together in the world that we live in today, I think that businesses are in a transition of bringing these risks, which are endogenous risks to the business, i.e. they are things that are within the control of the business, into the heart of the boardroom and thinking about actually how do these reflect our values? How do these reflect our purpose? And, and how do we then engage in them? First of all, to de-risk our business against regulations that are currently here and regulatory development, which is coming apace towards us. But secondly, and I think in a, in a, in a fundamental way, more importantly than a pure compliance-led approach, what does this mean about who we are? What does this mean to our customers and our staff? And what does this mean about our business? The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can hear all our former business shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast, and indeed you can hear this very program again. Or if you have a smart speaker, you can ask it to play Jazz Shapers, and there you'll be greeted by many of our recent shows. And back to today's guest, serial entrepreneur Sir Keith Mills, founder of the Air Miles and Nectar Customer Loyalty Programs, and a very 
important person behind London's successful bid to host the 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games. So the backing yourself thing works. And as you, you said earlier, you don't feel like you're, you're trying hard enough. These opportunities that come up and the ones that you create as well as the ones that are given to you, is there an instinct now that just kicks in with regard to, yeah, this is going to work or not? Or is, it, is there a formula that you still follow to ensure that there's going to be success? Well, I think, I think a lot of people like me do run on, on gut feel. Does this feel like it's a good idea? Does it feel like it's worth putting time and effort and money into it? I often go and talk at schools and you know, I, I say to the youngsters there, through your life, opportunities will come your way. And it's very easy to say no because either you don't think you can do it or because you've got a fear of failure. But I've always run my life on the basis that if it looks like it's interesting, we're only here once to give it a go. And probably the biggest sort of public risk I took was taking on the bid for the London Olympics because I knew absolutely nothing about the Olympic Games. But I thought I could pull it off and got a great team together and, and somehow we did. When you speak, you make it all sound really straightforward. And I, I mean, in the, the opposite of how that may have sounded, which is, well, he's just, just saying it. It's really easy. There's something about, it strikes me that you're that obviously you're down to earthness if there is such a thing. But it's almost like there's a calmness inside of you that says, right, okay, well, I don't understand about it and that's fine, I'll accept it, but I think I can help. The execution bit, which you mentioned earlier, when you then have gone over the hump of, well, I don't know anything about it, but I'm going to do it, in terms of executing excellently, if there were three or four things that are at the heart of how Keith Mill goes about ensuring that it's going to be a success, what are they once you've got over the hump, once you've taken the risk? Well, I think it starts with finding some really smart people. And I've spent my life trying to find people that are much smarter than me and bring them together into a team. Because whether it's my businesses or the sports things that I do or the Olympic Games or all the other projects, they've all started by assembling a great team of people. Uh, so that's, that's where I start. And then my contribution, I think, is by giving them some, some direction and coming up with a with a game plan and then helping them execute it. I mean, realistically, I don't, <laughs> it sounds terrible. I don't really do a lot. I just help other people do a lot and I give them the direction that they need. In terms of winning the, the bid for the Olympics, the level of organization in those final hours of, of essentially lobbying, walking the, the corridors, making sure that Seb Coase or someone, David Beckham or someone, whoever it was, was in the room, I imagine it was at a military level, earpieces, go there, turn left, go right, have that conversation. And again, I'm recalling a conversation, I'm, I'm pretty sure you talked about just how organised you had to be. If you didn't know anything about the Olympics and you didn't know anything, you know, how did you come to the notion that, okay, we've now got to ensure that in these last few hours that the IOC vote for London? How do you get to the answers of, well, I'm, I'm going to make sure that 37 conversations happen in the next 47 minutes. I mean, those are, you've got to know something, Keith. Yeah. I mean, where does that sort of strategy come from? Well, well, it starts by a lot of work in the preceding 18 months or two years. So in the 18 months leading up to those final few days in Singapore, where we made, you know, the five finalists made their presentations to the IOC, we'd identified about 65 IOC members. There are about 115 IOC members at that time, and they all have a vote. And we'd identify 65 of them that could vote for London 
in the first round or the second round or the third round. So the way, way it works is everyone votes. If there's no city with a, a clear majority, then the city with the fewest votes drops out and they vote again until they get a winner. And we had a pretty good idea by the time we went to Singapore, who people's first vote was going to be and who people's second vote was going to be. And so we identified 65 of them and we decided that in the 48 hours before the vote, we would try and arrange a 30-minute meeting uh, with uh, all 65. And we did that using Tony Blair and Ken Livingston and Craig Reedy, who is the IOC member for the UK, Princess Royal, Seb, myself, and we ran a military operation. As you say, we had six rooms in the hotel. We had uh, my team running around with radios in their ear, finding these 65 members, which were in a very large conference center. Some of them were pre-organized meetings. Uh, and we had a very simple message to them. We didn't actually ever ask for a vote. That was an, another rule that I put in place. We'd ask for advice. And we had 30 minutes and a cup of tea with 65 IOC members. And somehow we got 54 of them to vote for us in the final round. And that's how you do it. If people were to describe your leadership style, whether it's Sebastian Coe alongside you, or whether it's the many, many people that you've managed over the years, what do you think they'd say? I, I think I give them a lot of confidence. I mean, I, I'm an eternal optimist. So, you know, as much as giving them guidance and direction, I do seem to motivate people. I don't know why or how. I have an, an infectious enthusiasm about the various things that I do. And I think that enthusiasm rubs off on the people that I work with. And and I also like, you know, I, I like to think that things that we do, I mean, I work jolly hard like most people, but I like to think that the things that I do are fun as well. You can make business fun and you can make, certainly make organizing the Olympic Games fun. You can make most things fun because life's very short. And if we're not enjoying what we're doing, we shouldn't be doing it. But your standards are also very high. And this is where I just wonder whether when or do you get irritated, do you ever raise your voice? Because you know what great looks like, because you, you know when you deliver it, good things happen. Are you, you know, are you a little impatient sometimes, as one would expect of someone like you? And I don't mean that because I know you, but I mean because you're just, the stakes are pretty high. Yeah, well, actually, one of my shortcomings is I really, really, really hate losing. And, and so if people are doing stupid things and costing us a big deal or, or the Olympic Games or, or something else, then, then I get very frustrated. I set high standards and I expect the people around me to, to follow those sorts of standards. And if they're doing stupid things, then I clearly, like most people, get upset. But if primarily because in my gene somewhere is a sort of winning uh, mentality, I hate to lose. And, and that, that's also infectious for the people around you. They, you know, people like to work with winners. And in the winning mentality... With regard to the, the Olympics, which I don't think I've ever been as proud of, of the country, my country, our country, as I was when, when we won it, but also, of course, when we we're actually in it and I'm visiting there as just another, another citizen. When did you have the biggest high in terms of your pride? Because obviously you lived and breathed it for years. Was there a moment when you went, wow, I've been part of making something really special happen? And if so, when was that moment? I, I think there are probably two moments for me. The first moment was when we brought the Olympic flame from Greece to the UK and Seb and I and a small team went out and actually lit the f flame, which is done in ancient Olympia with the sun. 
And then it kicked off in Land's End at six o'clock in the morning. Um, and I was there, Ben Ainsley, who's a, a buddy of mine, our Olympic sailor, was the first runner. And I sat on the media truck that had all the cameras on it for most of that day. And I watched the public come out in all the villages and all the towns. And when we got to Plymouth, I think we had 50 or 1,000 people in the centre of Plymouth. That was the sort of beginning, if you like, of making it real. And then, to be honest, right at the end, the end of the closing ceremony of the Paralympic Games, Sebco and Paul Dighton, who was our CEO, I think probably Tessa Jowell, uh, God bless her, she's not with us now, but the Secretary of State was with us, and everyone had left the stadium, and we were sitting there drinking beer, and I think a sort of great sense of satisfaction that we'd pulled it off because the potential for catastrophes right along the way were significant, whether it was security catastrophes or weather catastrophes. And the fact that we got to the end and it had gone so well, I think was, uh, you know, an incredible feeling. Stay with me for my final chat with my guest there, Sir Keith Mills. And we've also got some music from Diana Krull. That's all coming up in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. I've just a few more minutes now with Sir Keith Mills as we try and conclude without missing anything critical and important. I'm bound to do that, I'm sure. The thing that also underpins for me your life is your set of values and your sense of fairness and your sense of participation, the importance of sport within that and many, many other things. How has that developed and where does it go next? Well, you're right. I mean, if, if you've been fairly successful, you've made some money, you, you absolutely, most of the people I know, really want to give something back. And, and I wanted to do some things around the Olympic Games as my sort of contribution, as it were, to the Games. And I started a couple of charities then uh, using sport to help disadvantaged kids, both in the UK and around the world. And I mean, I'd been involved with Breakthrough Breast Cancer and a few other charities previously, but these new charities that I started really had a, a soft spot. Watching how sport can transform the lives of young people, I think I really got. And and then, you know, later on when I got a call from Kensington Palace, you know, Prince Harry had an idea he wanted to talk to me about and then putting together the Invictus Games for those people that have served their country and have been injured or wounded. You get so much back by being involved in the community and, and, and in charities. And all the people that I know that uh, either financially or give time up to support charities get 10 times back the effort that they put in. And from Invictus went on to chair uh, the Royal Foundation with uh, actually that was started by William and Harry, but then became the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. And we did lots of stuff around mental health and the environment. Uh, so I get a huge kick out of giving back. And in terms of the people, Keith, that you you mix with, Again, back to the the boy from Essex now mixes with literally princes and princesses and so on and so forth. Do you give a hoot? I mean, does it does it even flicker? Is there a sense that it that you treat anyone differently? Uh, no, I, I certainly I don't think I treat anyone differently. And all the people that I deal with, including you know, members of the royal family, you know, they are all of them that I that I've worked with are genuinely there trying to do the right thing, and it's a real privilege to help them do it. And whether it's a famous footballer or a famous Olympic star, it's really the values of the individual that I think are important. And, and most people, frankly, are good people all trying to do the right thing. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you in this uh, slightly virtual 
unusual world. It would have been nice to have met you in person, but maybe that will happen one day soon too. Just before I let you disappear into the, the ether, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Um, I've chosen a really haunting piece by Candy Dolfer, who's a Dutch saxophonist, and, and she produced a piece of music, I don't know, it must have been 10 years ago now, with, with Dave Stewart. And what I love about this piece of music is that it's a saxophone talking to a guitar. And, I mean, it's, it's a haunting piece of music, and it's one of my favourites. Candy Dolfer with Lily was here, the song choice of my business shaper today, Keith Mills. If I'm not taking risks, I'm not trying hard enough, he said. He talked about the importance of execution and just how critical it is beyond having the idea. He talked about not fearing failure. And of course, as he said of himself, if you have nothing, you've got nothing to lose. And finally, and critically to his management style, he talked about his infectious enthusiasm. The simple things really do matter. That's it from Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash jazz shapers.